Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Christy McClear has joined Sotheby's advisory division, Art Agency Partners, where she will be working with living artists, estate trustees, and artist foundations. With her new role in mind, this episode of the Artelligence Podcast presents a talk McClear gave at the Institute for Artists' Estates' first annual conference held in Berlin in September of 2016. In this talk, and the question and answers that follow, McClear shares some of the insights from her six years' experience as the head of the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. McClear emphasizes the importance of understanding an artist's values. A clear sense of values guides heirs and trustees to decide how best to make use of a foundation's assets. Those values will also help the foundation move forward into areas that he or she might not have foreseen yet fulfill an artist's legacy. Here's Christy McClear to explain in her own words. So I'm the business person here, and um, I like to call myself uh, the strategist with the personality of the artist who loves the artist and loves to build the bridge somewhere between uh, what I call sculpting fog uh, and creating a future and documenting history. Um, So I just wanted to say um, that the Rauschenberg Foundation was actually started by Rauschenberg in 1990. So like what we heard a little bit earlier, it was created during his lifetime. He died in 2008. It was a very different foundation under his stewardship than it is now, which Sean spoke to, sort of the rigors of once the estate transfers into the foundation and all of the rules that are incumbent in that structure. Um, The foundation owns uh, all of the remaining artwork that Bob had in his personal collection. A large portion of that is the post-1970s work. Uh, We realized all of the real estate, um, which I'll go through what that was, um, and very little cash assets. And I think for a number of you that will be relevant and we'll talk about how we sorted through that. Um, Now, the foundation, after we received all of the assets only four years ago, uh, we do three things. We basically manage the artwork through all the loans, consignments, sales, museum shows, archives and scholarship. So that's one aspect of what we do. The second aspect of what we do is we run a philanthropy program. So we give away grants, and I'll talk to you about how we defined the pathway for what those grants would look like. And then the last was we converted his home and studio on an island off of Captiva, Florida, into an artist residency, where uh, we were inspired by his time at Black Mountain College. And we have 10 artists there every five weeks, so we serve 100 different artists from all over the world in all different disciplines, from dancers to writers, poets, um, uh, filmmakers, and fine artists. So that's where we are today. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was what happens during an artist's lifetime. Um, As you know, a lot of us are recommending that some of these questions should come up at this time. It's obviously really impossible to deal with your mortality during this time, but I think if you can talk to an artist and ask questions around intent. Bob 
checked every box. So there's a form in America where you check the box of the things you're interested in. He was interested in everything, which I think you can see even from his artwork. Health and human services, education, uh, the environment, uh, anything that he could be, he was interested in. He had that sort of largesse. That's quite difficult when you have, so let's call it an unbalanced portfolio of assets, because we couldn't do everything. So we really had to go through some strategic evaluation of, well, what could we manage with the assets that we had first? So the first thing to ask a question of an art living artist is really about their intent. The second is about the time horizon. Do you want your foundation to live in perpetuity? And it sounds so wonderful. It sounds like you could live forever. But many artists actually make the decision that they really only want their horizon for the foundation to exist for 10 years. Some of that deals with the asset base. And I know that sounds highly businesslike and very mechanical, but it is quite important. And a number of artists, uh, Merce Cunningham, for example, actually wanted to uh, find a way that his dances could live forever, but give those dances and license those dances to other people. Uh, there are a number of other foundations that hope to uh, distribute the artwork to museums, colleges and universities for scholarship, and they'll donate their archives, and then they'll wrap up the foundation of the estate. Now, at the Rauschenberg Foundation, we do anticipate that we will operate on an ongoing basis. Perpetuity by a lawyer, which we know is the anathema of our audience today, forgive me, is actually only 25 years, but we anticipate that, uh, so we actually have made a time horizon which is about a 50 year time horizon, but we do expect it to go much longer than that. Why is this important? It's important to imagine how long that time horizon is for you because your strategy is entirely different if you're gonna operate on a long-term basis than on a 10 year basis how you distribute the artworks, whether you gift and place them in museums, and even for us, how we exhibit the pieces and develop deep scholarship in certain areas of Rauschenberg's and bring those areas uh, to market and create value over time. So we have a time horizon which is 10, 15, and 20 years out. Um, and that's actually very important to realize. The last question is about leadership, and leadership can come in three different areas. Um, the first are the trustees for your estate, and I'm sure you know that the, uh, found, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation had some trustees uh, that uh, Rauschenberg didn't put a cap in his uh, legal will, and as an artist, you are able to identify how much you're willing to pay your trustees to shepherd the assets during the course of the estate, or to transition them into the foundation. Without articulating what that cap is, it actually could simply be a percentage, and if you have a large estate, that can be quite a lot of money. And we look at that money as uh, something that we would be giving to the philanthropic world, and of course, as we've heard before, um, the people who you think are your friends during life sometimes have a different viewpoint after you're gone. That's uh, a case that's universal throughout art history. So a very important point to realize is the choice of your trustees should be people who knew you really well, should be those close advisors, but also should be professional people who may have a different viewpoint uh, to bring to the table in the distribution of the assets. 
The second is the board, the board that you form for your foundation. And uh, when I came to uh, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, founded under Bob, the board was comprised of staff, which we know is actually in America uh, a conflict of interest, the trustees, who were then voting on paying themselves, which is a conflict of interest, and then some other uh, people who didn't have quite a lot of conflict of interest. So it's important to recognize straight away uh, who has a conflict of interest. Staff should never be on a board, uh, and nor should the trustees, uh, because shepherding the estate, and then once it closes, those people could migrate to the foundation. An important thing to know is that the skills should be varied. An art person, a financial person, a scholar, somebody who might understand philanthropy, and somebody who might understand philanthropy in the area of interest of the artist. So for example, we've brought on uh, somebody from our board who understands climate change and the environment, which is very important for us considering we're investing so much in this area. So I think that leadership is one of the key questions during the lifetime of the artist. So there are a couple of steps that are really important and I'm just gonna boil it down to three and then I'll drill down into them a little bit. I'm gonna call it understanding the assets you have and this actually directs what you will do. The second is defining the values or the, the lens, the legacy of the artist because that will also affect what you do. And then the third part is to be very open and porous about the activities because you have a long period of time and so I actually am an advocate of piloting projects to see what works and what resonates with the legacy the most and to be able to change some of those pilot projects over time. So assets, values, and pilot projects. So what you're looking at is, uh, this was the inspiration wall that Bob had in his studio, and on this side, you can actually see one aspect of our warehouse. Um, when I came into the foundation, we had real estate, which I mentioned. We had two warehouses. One was actually empty. Didn't, it was actually more of, I called it a real estate investment. Uh, we had the island in Captiva. Um, and we had a home and studio in New York City, which was originally an orphanage with a chapel. Um, the second thing we had, interestingly, was we inherited a lot of corporations. We had a number of investments in large companies and smaller companies that came into the foundation, which, you know, even if you're an art person or a business person, uh, that's not part of a legacy management. So it was something that we realized we need to sell the assets of, of these corporations so that that could begin to create our investment pool and our endowment. Then we had artwork, very little cash and securities, which many of you may be in this situation as well. We looked at the artwork and we actually looked at it in two ways. We looked at the Rauschenberg artwork, which was the most important asset we had and obviously the largest asset we had. And we had non-Rauschenberg artwork. And we had hundreds of pieces from artists that he revered, from Duchamp to Magritte. We had artists who uh, he had worked with, Bryce Marden and Frank Stella. And then we had art from artists who he had traded with or who had gifted to him. So Damien Hurst had sent him a piece because he was so inspired by Bob. Uh, you're, trip, you're typically, this is not an asset that even if it tells the tale of Rauschenberg, very personal pieces, 
a John Cage score, uh, a drawing of Tricia Brown's foot uh, that she had given to Bob, um, some artwork from Cy Twombly that he had developed while in Captiva with Bob. Um, very personal pieces. But the critical decision we made was it was actually more important for these pieces to be sold and create an ongoing operating endowment for us or to be gifted to scholarship or institutions who could use those assets very well. So we donated the John Cage scores to the New York Public Library for Performing Arts. Uh, and we had a choice. We actually were making a choice between an auction or an exhibition and selling the artwork. An auction is actually a choice that more people make. Um, it's less opaque, it's very transparent, uh, there's not a lot of conflicts, uh, and you can inure certain values straight away. It's difficult and very important. Um, when I managed the estate of David Whitney and Philip Johnson, we worked very hard and very closely with um, Sotheby's to ensure that the legacy and the catalog, uh, it would speak less to a garage sale, which is our worst nightmare, to understanding these pieces as a part of somebody's life. That was quite important to us. At the Rauschenberg Foundation, we actually made a different decision. We made a decision to have a show at Gagosian, to show the exhibition, to produce a book, and then whatever pieces we didn't sell from that exhibition, we would manage those sales over a long period of time. This is a very labor-intensive process. Um, we probably inured um, a slightly greater value over time, but I think once you extracted the time value and the staff, it's sort of, um, you know, they're very like-kind situations. Um, this was also a situation where it was right in the middle of the estate and the foundation owning the assets, and that seemed to be the easiest way to go for us. So. All of the non-Rauschenberg artwork has actually created our operating endowment. That's the money that we use to operate the foundation and to operate all of our philanthropy. And by virtue of that, we've been able to draw out a longer sales plan and placement plan for the Rauschenberg artwork. So this is why I'm saying that looking at the assets and making sure that you can actually consider what money do you need in order to take very a slow and deliberate steps with the artwork of the artist who you're predominantly focused on. So, I will say that. The next piece is, once you understand the assets and what you want to do, the next piece of this, probably the most important, but certainly is defining the legacy. Now, you could define a mission statement. I call it the 411 mission statement. It's like the general mission statement. To steward the legacy of the artist. Like anybody could say that, Mike Kelly, if you had, if that was your mission statement, you would be no different than Rauschenberg Foundation. Or if, uh, if Flavin had that for his mission statement, it wouldn't define what made Donald Judd so unique. And I think the challenge here is truly, you know, how long can somebody who's known the artist be a steward for that legacy? And so our purpose was to pull together the people who knew our artist best and to, to define the value systems so that 100 years from now, somebody could make good decisions on the behalf of the artist. So those questions, or the outcomes for us, for Rauschenberg, were things like, Rauschenberg was a risk taker. 
He was extremely generous. He was a creative problem solver. He was highly collaborative. Um, these are things that now, when we look at our grant programs, we don't just give money to artists. We give money to artists who are looking at problems from different solutions. We look at collaborative teams of artists. And we look at people who are taking risks and will invest in them in a longer term because of the value system that we've defined for the artist. And I think that this is really important because on our board, it's a priority to continue to bring people on who knew the artist, but we're just bracing for the fact that that era will end in another generation or two, and we're truly building this for on an ongoing basis. So the values in defining the legacy is really important. This is a picture of Bob. Um, I don't know if you know this about Robert Rauschenberg, but as well as being um, sort of what I call creatively vivacious and, and uh, uh, just exuberant, he was also incredibly engaged in humanity and global issues. Um, he was one of the artists in the 1980s where he went to Cuba and China, to Russia, to Venezuela, and he wanted to work with the artists because he believed art had a transcendent power over politics. He believed that art was a better communicative currency than what the politicians were doing. And so this actually is more resonant today, and one of the reasons I think we're all here, which is we realize that... Uh, the artist, in many ways, is a forecasting things that can only be understood decades later. And so part of our project, uh, we have a retrospective coming up, the Tate Modern, um, and we were sitting down with a number of press, and you know, the, the press knew Robert Rauschenberg for his combines, and they knew him for his early work, but they really didn't know him as a person which defined so much of his later work, so much of this humanitarian. And we thought that that's actually quite important. So this third part is really about piloting projects. What you see here is uh, one of the structures we have in Captiva. This is called the Fish House, um, and it's actually a house that's out in the water. There are about 12 different structures on about 30 acres, which take up uh, a large portion of this island. And this is where, on the left-hand side, you can see we're bringing artists from around the world, and they're free to do what they wish. Just as in Black Mountain College, uh, we had a big discussion in the beginning. How do you create collaboration? You don't engineer collaboration. You just provide artists with a place and a stipend and uh, equipment and five weeks. And we were shocked to find that in the end, without us asking them, they started working together on all sorts of things. And the number one thing we've learned from the residency is that people who come in as a photographer leave as a printmaker, or they'll come in as a dancer and they leave as a sound artist because Bob was very wide-ranging in many of the different methodologies he used. And so we have this wide range of facilities. It allows people to take those risks in this place to try different things. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the pilots that we use. Um, we in one of the warehouses that I mentioned earlier, before we made the decision to sell it outright, we thought to ourselves, well, what if we hosted shows? Or what if we actually gave this space as a grant to small arts organizations? Um, and so we used it 
for a year, and we sort of saw and we asked people if it was useful, and we ended up saying, okay, we could do these three things with this asset, or we could actually sell this warehouse and use it in our philanthropic fund. And in the end, we ended up selling the warehouse and using it as for our philanthropy. Captiva, we did the same thing. So before we actually started formalizing the residency, we just invited people down. We said, let's just invite some people down to Captiva and let's see what they do with it. And all we're going to ask them in response is to tell us, if you came here, would you want to come here for four weeks or a month or six months? We didn't know. Do you want us to ask you to produce something in the end, yes or no? And interestingly, I think you can serve the market so much better if you ask the people that you are trying to benefit. And in the end, we did not end up selling Captiva because we found that the artists who went down there said they would rather have that experience than have a grant. And that experience actually changed their lives or it even changed their practice, which we thought was very in keeping with our legacy. So it was a really important thing for us in the early stages for the first three to five years to begin to pilot some of these projects. We did the same thing with the artwork. So all of us loan artwork, consign artwork, and mount museum shows and scholarship. We were realizing that colleges and universities are some of the best areas to work with. You really want your artists to be known by young scholars. The university museums don't have the money that large-scale museums have, but they also don't have the money to get get the artwork, and they don't have the money to insure the artwork. So we made the decision. We set aside a little pot of money, and it wasn't so much, actually much less than many other things we did. And we worked with some schools, and we transported the artwork there and paid for the insurance. It was unbelievable what happened. There were classes that formed around the uh, Rauschenberg, Merce Cunningham, John Cage triumvirate. And they were classes not just in art. It was art history. It was history, music, and dance all came together. So what we ended up with as a foundation, building the legacy of Rauschenberg, just by that simple looking at the barriers for that very important audience for us, the student audience, I think has served us very, very well. So again, I think being able to creatively try different things is very important, so allowing yourself creative license. One of the things that we all deal with is the use and the access of the artwork. Um, It was interesting for us because uh, we have three retrospectives coming up at Tate Modern, MoMA, NSF MoMA. But one thing that we realized is Rauschenberg to us is a global artist and we wanted to ensure that we could place his work and exhibit his work globally. So the slide you have up there is a show uh, in China that we just closed uh, in Beijing of a quarter mile. It's a piece that's actually a quarter mile long. We had to rent a tanker and take it over there. It was really totally crazy. But I do think that thinking about where your artist needs to be and not just the curators who are coming to you, but thinking about where you want your artist to be I think is very important. So proactively stewarding that legacy in terms of access. I have a lot of questions that get asked of us about gallery representation. 
And similarly, when we were defining our goal of positioning Bob and ensuring his history as a global artist, um, we made a shift from Gagosian Gallery to three galleries because we wanted very in-depth representation in Europe, in Asia, and in South America. And so thinking about your strategy and how the galleries relate to that is important as well. So I'm sort of going to close on two things. One is there's some external forces here. So we're obviously dealing with our own microcosm. Um, a, a question came up earlier about uh, uh, licensed use of images. And this is very in keeping with our artist's legacy. But one of our um, archivists came up to me one day and she said, you know, the people in the museums can go and take a picture of a Rauschenberg work and they can put it on Instagram and they misspell Rauschenberg and they get the date wrong. But we actually have constraints for the museums. They have to pay, which of course we waive, or you know, there's a process for them that's quite cumbersome. And as we started thinking about it, we realized there were a lot of barriers with the external influence of technology that are facing us right now. And we made the decision to open up our copyright so there's something in America called fair use, which is if you have an educational purpose, you have the right to use those images without request. The problem is most people don't use the images without request. They still go through the system of VAGA or ARS or the sister organizations in Europe. And that process is so cumbersome for people, it provides a barrier. So even if we waive the fee, it's still a barrier for teachers, for scholars, for writers. So we made the decision that if you're writing about Rauschenberg or your museum or a scholar, you can have free use of the image. And if you have the, if you have the image, you don't even have to ask us. And we did that. We tested it, of course. And I will tell you that uh, we've had sort of a profound bump in use of Rauschenberg images. And you might say that's self-serving, but I will say, from a scholar's standpoint, when I heard that teachers were teaching art history to the free images, I would say that that's a part of our responsibility. So um, I share that with you because I do think, despite the fact that we did waive some of the income that we have, the benefit so far outstrips that. Um, it, is tr it is truly remarkable. Um, I leave you with a picture of Baum uh, doing his performance, which was little understood when he did it, but I think now inspiring to young artists. Uh, this is an emerging field, and I want to thank you so much for organizing this. I know that we are all in this together, whether you come at it from a strategist's point of view or a son or daughter's point of view. And I do believe that the long-term stewardship is the most important thing. So thank you very much. So we can take some questions, just a couple of questions, if anybody has any. John, you have a question? <laughs> Is this working? Yeah. It's not so much a question. Um, I actually just really wanted to thank you um, publicly, because we've done it personally, for being so generous and kind to us at the Kelly Foundation. I mean, one of the great things about the Foundation world is that 
it's still a relatively small world and people are struggling against the odds with the same questions, the same issues, the same problems. Uh, and uh, we were just as uh, a foundation um, greatly, um, you know, benefited by generosity in New York from, from Rauschenberg, from Warhol and for very, various others. And we'd just like to thank you for that. Oh. And I just also would like to underline um, here, I guess I have to wear one of my two hats. Um, my Kelly Foundation is one, but I'm obviously a professor at the university. And I really applaud um, more from the academic hat because I, I have to be more careful on the foundation side. But I really applaud this idea of releasing copyright and allowing uh, scholars and writers uh, access to the image uh, much more easily because I think this is fundamentally important. And yeah. everyone in this room from one side or the other has found uh, how, how difficult it is or can be uh, to give, to receive, to transmit uh, these rights. So it's certainly one thing we as a foundation will be also considering. Yeah, I think that control is really the critical, it's sort of the fulcrum piece. And, you know, whereas we've tried to control this for so long, it really required us to sort of reverse the concept of control. And what we were doing was giving control to the people who we knew would steward it best for us. So it was less the general public who was snapping the picture, and we were preferencing the people who were scholars. And I think by trusting them, it's amazing what a team we've built that way. Um, and I like to say that this field is additive, never competitive, which I think is by virtue of that. Anybody else? Oh. I would like to ask, is there a difference between an estate and a foundation? I'm sorry? Is there a difference between an estate and a foundation from a legal point of view? Or I heard it several times. There is. Is there somebody who's going to be talking about that legally? You also, so you mentioned something that in the while uh, going from an estate to a foundation, you're considering something. So, so I'm not a lawyer, but um, I will say that an estate is uh, largely from the most simplistic version is the estate is the receivership, the receptacle, where after an artist dies, the assets go into the estate. The estate can stay open and operate as an estate, but uh, in the will, Robert Rauschenberg's will, he had identified that all of his assets, after certain distributions to uh, family members, would be donated to the foundation, which is an operating, let's call it a nonprofit. It's a, it's a charity, not in the legal term, but it operates under a nonprofit tax code. So an estate and a foundation are actually quite different, and the legal aspects of them are quite different. So we've never authenticated, and we will not authenticate. But we are embarking on a catalog resume, which, as you know, we've been doing two years of work just to get to the place where we can say, now we will begin working on the catalog resume. Um, one thing that's interesting is we actually haven't seen a lot of fake Rauschenbergs, which is a benefit to us. Um, another thing is there are sort of the legal cost benefit of it didn't seem to warrant that, uh, what would you call it, armature that you have to create for something like that. I will say we're a foundation that likes to test the rules uh, and and find new ways to do things versus, um, you know, build structures based on the rules. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, say again. Well, I think that we can all say, and, and certainly the catalog resume panel will deal with this, but the catalog resume process is ostensibly the process of identifying all of the work. And that ostensibly becomes your catalog resume. I think we're very focused on ensuring that we have a digital uh, infrastructure. That's what we've been working on for the last two years uh, because we want to make sure that that's always accurate. And we all know that sometimes after you print a catalog resume that, you know, something can come in later and adjustments need to be made. Can I ask another question about, oh, sorry, about copyright? Um, so you've eased copyright in regard to scholarly use, but how about in regard to creative use? Because oh. an awful lot of work is being made, I mean, obviously artists increasingly work yeah. from other artists. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, and the reason is we... we we opened it up to artists as well. Rachel Harrison actually came to us and asked if she could use Rauschenberg images in a body of her work. And um, we said, you bet. We're so excited about that. And she said she was literally waiting to expect a big dialogue and months of conversation. And uh, But we had one meeting and discussed what was the ethos of the, of the artist and what was our value system. And it was simply the idea that image reuse was a part of Rauschenberg's practice. So it would be crazy for us not to. And in that same sense, we actually have gone to bat for Richard Prince. Um, we have uh, gone with the Warhol Foundation in a, in a, it's like a friend of the court brief around uh, the reuse of images throughout art history so that a judge who's deciding some of these things and may not be an art historian is at least briefed on this, but also understands what are the other artist foundation's critical concerns. So we're actually very open and invite artists to reuse the images. Okay. And the artist doesn't have to ask permission in advance? No, they don't. Wonderful. Hi, quick question. Uh, actually, two. So first one is, what uh, participation, if any, has the descendants or family relatives of, uh, of the artists in the current running of the foundation? And second, uh, the pool of, of, of work of art, I know you described that essentially you sold or separated the non... Uh, 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 the work from, uh, that didn't belong to the artist from the one that did, did belong, but then all of that uh, went to the foundation or even the, the pool of work from the artists were separated into two, some for the family, all the purposes and, and, uh, and the rest? So uh, the two questions. The first is... Um, yeah, so um, Sue Weil was his wife, uh, met in Paris and, uh, and had a child, Christopher Rauschenberg. And Christopher Rauschenberg is the only living heir of Bob, and he is our board chair and president. And I couldn't ask for a better person to work with and for, because he is as generous as his father was, um, and as open-minded and inspirational. So um, that's really fantastic. Um, the second part, uh, all of those assets, both non-Rauschenberg and Rauschenberg, came into the foundation, and I'll say, one more thing, it's quite important for all of us, many of you probably know this, once we took the non-Rauschenberg out and, as I'll call it, uh, converted that into our philanthropic fund or endowment, the rest of the Rauschenberg work, it's very important for us, particularly, I think for most artists, estates and foundations, 
is to begin to understand, we have, for lack of a better term, classified the pieces. Long-term hold, to keep them in perpetuity, to loan, to exhibitions, etc. Some of the most important pieces that we really don't want to let go of for quite a long time. Um, pieces that we want to go to museums, that are, uh, speak to certain moments in our history of his practice, uh, of certain size and scale that are important for scholarship, and then work that we are willing to sell on the commercial markets. So we've actually gone through the entire inventory and classified them in that way. It helps us uh, not have to go back to the well all the time so that our agents can work from a body of work that they know um, we can sell. Okay, I want to thank you very much, and we're ready. Here we go. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 